Hi, everybody. Stuart Gandalf here. Uh, welcome to our webinar. Uh, again, I am uh, pleased to bring an old friend and a new friend <laughs> to our uh, webinar slash podcast or article, depending how you're consuming the content today. Um, today, we're uh, Rob Klein, uh, one of my uh, friends and uh, colleagues and uh, former uh, Palm Springs modern, modern mid-century <laughs> aficionado is here to talk about research. Um, so <laughs> Rob and I will be uh, uh, talking probably about the mid-century modern. We'll figure out how to put that into this conversation somewhere, <laughs> And um, as well, we have a new friend, Chris Harrop uh, with MGMA. Uh, he's gonna uh, provide some comments about uh, some of the a quick little research or quick research they've done with their organization. He's senior editorial manager for MGMA. Uh, but Rob and I'll be, Rob will be doing most of the talking and I'll be joining in with my usual color commentary. So welcome both of you guys. Thanks, Stuart, glad to be Thank here. Thank you. All right, great. So Rob, why don't we go through this and you and I have you know, prepped and we certainly have, um, have a lot of uh, thoughts about this. So let's just jump straight into it. <clears throat> Sounds good. So just quick, uh, quick methodological background so everybody is familiar with how we conducted the study. It was an online national survey among um, consumers, heads of household. We talked to a little over 500, 511 to be exact, and we fielded this, uh, which seems like moons ago, uh, June 10th uh, to the 15th. You know, we all know things are changing almost daily uh, as we get new information. So uh, that's why we're, we're, this is the third wave of three waves that I conducted. The first wave was back, way back in April, early April, and then early May, we did wave two, and now we're talking about wave three. I'm, I'm kind of watching what's going on to see if maybe a wave four might make sense. But I think what we're going to hear today, uh, I, I think this really gives us some good guidance on th the real question we have to answer as healthcare marketers uh, is how do we get people back safely? We need them to come back, and they need us to help them to come back. And so we're going to talk about that. What does that relationship look like? Uh, to help people come back to uh, our organizations. So let's uh, jump into the different chapters that we have in our, in our study. First, this question I, I, I start out in the survey asking folks is, since we're so used to the bell-shaped curve now, that's all we hear people talking about, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. So people are kind of understanding that curve. So we decided to put that in the survey and say, where do you think we are on the curve? So you can see the first wave in April, people thought we were still ramping up to a peak time, the worst, if you will. Then wave two in May, we started just getting past the, the, the peak and starting down the, the backside. But then in wave three, we kind of backed up a little bit. So really the theme of this wave three is hesitation. So this clearly is not going to be a linear progression back to whatever the new normal is gonna look like. This is a windy, twisty road with bumps and blind spots, and that's the challenge. So I would say to you, people in this, in this time period, they're very anxious right now. And when people are anxious, uh, if you look at kind of um, sociology and psychology uh, and consumer behavior, when people are anxious, uh, their cognitive reasoning skills are diminished. And that means as healthcare providers, we have to do the thinking for them. We have to be there for them. We have to recognize they're forgetting things. They're not remembering to do this or that. So we have to help them through this difficult time. So not only do we have to have processes in place for access, whether it's virtual care, things like that, we have to help them understand how this new normal is working right now. That means we have to acknowledge their fears and we have to explain how things are gonna work. And we have to do it in a very calming, uh, understanding voice because how we act to them is going to signal how they should act back to us. And we're going to get into more detail um, on that. I'll kind of steal my own thunder, but I'm calling it empathic access. And you'll know what I mean when we get to those slides. I'll talk about it in more detail. But I wanted to kind of plant those two words in, in your brains today, empathic access. So, Rob, also, as we're going to – yeah, go ahead, Stuart. I um, just have to jump in at this opening stage here. The, it's interesting, I, when we talked about this offline, the idea of it going backwards in terms of where we are, and it's interesting, I saw, I read a lot, I wish I could remember the source yesterday, but one of the sort of smart people that was epidemiologist or 
uh, I don't know if it's Fauci or somebody else, but was saying that probably was not Fauci, that the, they're speculating that we are, you know, at a stage now, and no, I think it was in Louisiana, that they're at a stage where they, you know, the, the shutdown where it's almost as if it didn't happen, right? So there's obviously a mm -hmm. lot of coronavirus expanding. Um, they're doing a better job of managing the cases once they get them, but clearly um, things are not feeling sort of like on the downward slide. And so mm -hmm. what matters is, is that when I talk to clients about how to communicate with patients and just really how to, you know, communicate with staff and everybody else is to have that long-term perspective. You know, I think most people would agree that's, you know, read any of the science on this, that this isn't going to be over by August. It's not just going to fade away. And so that long-term right. perspective, mm -hmm. and I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know when it's going to be over. My sort of stake in the ground is I'm hoping that the vaccines will be ready and rolled out in, you know, early next year. And then maybe by May we'll be in this whole new normal. But this, what's exciting about, and that's, you know, I hope at least that, right? We're all hoping it's not done tomorrow, but it, I think it's important to have that long-term perspective of recognizing that, um, you know, we're in, and, we'll, and I'll be writing about this more, but like healthcare is changing as we know it, but to have that perspective of maybe to settle down a little and recognize you can't be knee-jerk every five minutes because it's, it is a longer-term play and your data, I think, will bear that out as well. Absolutely. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And Clearly, if we follow what the, uh, the healthcare providers are doing, they're wearing masks, washing their hands, social distancing. If masks didn't work, then healthcare providers would be getting sick left and right, but they're not. So when I hear the argument of, oh, masks don't work or it's against my freedom, um, you know, I say, if you're lost in the woods and someone knows where they're going, I would follow them. So I think we just have to follow the, the healthcare providers. They're clearly like, it works. Otherwise, we'd all be sick or dead. So I, I think that's something we've got to really figure out. This is a long-term play. So being safe about it doesn't mean we can't live life. It just means if we're going to go out, just be smart about it. Yep. The other thing that's important on this, that's a, a theme throughout the study, is that women and those 18 to 44, they are not as optimistic about our progress. They are more anxious. They are more concerned. All of their scores are more in the negative or worry uh, range, if you will. And with younger people, gosh, many of them don't know a decade without a tragic event, whether it's 9-11, uh, the depression, the recession of 2008, and now this. They're getting to the point where they're like, when's the next shoe going to drop? And so their mental health needs are, are through the roof. In fact, I think we're going to be facing a mental health crisis like we've never seen before. Um, it's a lag effect. I think it's coming. But I think we're going to see... Um, we're going to see suicides rates go through the roof. We're going to see opioid death. They're already way up. Uh, divorces, um, bankruptcies, job loss. That's coming down the pike that I don't think no one's really talking about it and preparing for it. But men the mental health crisis is going to be huge in this country. And we've got to start preparing for it now. So we also asked um, their exposure. This is an important question because there's a correlation between the more people that know someone with the coronavirus, the more anxious and their levels of concern are higher. So the more people that, the more people that know someone, those are the folks that their, their concern level is higher. You know, it's just like that old adage. If it's like, if I don't know anyone with this problem, then I'm not worried about it. Once it starts hitting home and it, I, I know someone with it, then all of a sudden the concern is real because it's at my back door. And so we're seeing the levels of people knowing somebody with it, whether it's friend or family, that's up significantly just in the three waves that we've done. Hence, our levels of concern. In terms of testing, uh, testing is, is obviously, it's going up every wave, no surprise there. And, uh, you know, fortunately, the majority of people are still testing negative, which is, a, is just is a blessing. Um, but, uh, um, you know, what's concerning is you've got Many people that said, I tried but couldn't get the test, that's still 15%. That keeps going up, 8, 11, and 15. So what is of concern is not that more people are getting tested. That's a good thing. But more people are trying to get tested, and they can't. That's more of what concerns me. So let's talk about some of the behaviors during and after the coronavirus. We asked folks, and I, sh I apologize, I, sh I should let you know, at the bottom of every chart, is the actual question we ask in the survey. So if you're curious, hey, how'd you ask that question? It's at the bottom for you. So we asked folks, did you have any new healthcare behaviors 
um, during the coronavirus. And the dark blue bar is wave three, middle blue bars is, um, is wave two, and then the lightest blue bar, that's the first wave. Remember back in April and May um, were the wave one and wave two. And you can see the arrows, those just indicate a statistically significant difference uh, between those two data points. So for example, virtual mental health, that 11% is, is significantly higher than in prior waves. The same for virtual visits. So if you look at just those two things and we take nothing else away from this study, the two big things that are critical for us is virtual care is here to stay. We've gotta be on board, not only operationally, but how we're positioning it. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And mental health, whether it's virtual or in person, back when we get to our, our, our new normal, but mental health capabilities are absolutely critical for us. You know, we wanna, um, we wanna be able to take care of the whole person and population health, we talk about it as providers all the time. Well, now it's been thrust upon us. Now we really do have to um, manage um, entire populations. So then we also said, wh whether you've done it now or not, how likely are you to do it after uh, the coronavirus uh, has ended, um, at whatever that is? And so these are the percentage of people that said, oh, I'm definitely gonna do that. No surprise, PCP office visit. People wanna get back to normal. They, if they were seeing their doctor before, of course they wanna get back to seeing them. No one is saying that virtual visits are gonna replace an in-person visit. They are just augmenting it. They are another option to expand access to care. Because I can tell you, time is the new currency, and access is critical now for consumers. So, Rob, I want to expand upon that. Yeah. So, one sure. of the things that we talk about again is, as we look at the future and how healthcare is you know, jumping ahead to May-ish or whenever, that healthcare is going to change. And I think that the thing that's interesting is exactly the way you have your slides out here is the PC visit is certainly still key, but urgent care is part of that process. Retail clinic is part of that process. Virtual visit yes. is part of that process. So, yeah. you know, just like with our webinar, we deliver our webinar, you can read the transcript, you can read the summary, you can uh, watch the webinar, you can get the slides, or you can listen to it on a podcast, right? Different people want to consume information differently. And so we give the people what they want. And healthcare, I would argue, is the same way. That, um, oh, yeah. And the other thing that's, um, we can talk about is it's relevant to your survey here of the and uh, how consumers have embraced virtual visit. There was a, some trepidation from people, certainly um, reimbursement we've talked about, reimbursement barriers, HIPAA barriers, doctors not wanting to do it for a whole bunch of different reasons, but the consumers mm -hmm. are coming back. And um, as we think about the future, we're trying to think through, okay, we have to get slogged through these very difficult months to get to the future, but I would encourage anybody on this webinar to be reimagining your business with these components as part of how do we deliver care? How can we make it easy for the consumer? Because healthcare, there's all kinds of friction in the healthcare process, legendary friction in the healthcare process, but clearly when the consumers are voting with their feet. So that's really intriguing how broad of interest there really is here. Yeah. And, it, and it's all about primary care. And as you say, we, we still want to have a primary care relationship, but that how we interact with that primary care or sick care or urgent care, there's more access points now that we have to provide to people. Um, it's not just going in to see my primary care um, physician like it was in the old days. Um, things are, things are, are definitely changing with that. And with virtual visits, I mean, I was in banking in the early 80s and did a lot of research when ATMs were brand new. AT, people did not like ATMs at first. They thought they were, um, they were going to make mistakes. There was no one to talk to. And nowadays, think about this. Can you imagine a world without an ATM? For sure. No, you, you can't. So eventually, people are going to be saying, oh, my gosh, can you remember a world without a virtual visit? That's going to come. We have to peop help people get there uh, because some of the concerns people have about virtual visits they're the same things I heard back in the early 80s in terms of uh, lack of quality, lack of privacy, things like that. So people sometimes buck new technology and then they, then they realize, oh my gosh, what did I do? Um, how did I survive without this? So we have to help them get that way with say virtual visits. And then mental health sessions as well. Those are critical, especially among younger folks and, and, and women. Women are the, are the household CEO. 
and the healthcare decision maker for the vast majority of households. And so they're seeing firsthand what's, what's happening. They're paying attention to what's going on um, during this time and their stress levels are higher than, than men. So how did, this is something I added in the third uh, wave here. How did consumers first learn about virtual visits? Well, their doctor's office. So physician offices must continue to be proactive in offering solutions to get patients back in. Clearly, physicians are the face and voice of healthcare brands if they're part of a healthcare system or um, employed um, by a larger organization. And in many ways, they are the fifth P of marketing. You know, we learn product, price, place, and promotion. Well, they're personal selling. So we've got to make sure we provide them with all of the resources and the learning so that they can be that brand voice for our, our organizations. They are critical. You know, Chris, if I can, if I can ask you, you know, what, with your work, are you seeing this, the kind of the same things that physician offices really are at the front line right now and they are representing the brands behind them in many ways? You know, something that keeps coming up is just how, you allude to it in how many people know someone that has COVID-19 and how there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety associated with this. Doctors and nurses are two of the three top most trusted professions in America, according to Gallup's polling. So they have a very good bully pulpit right now to go mm -hmm. out and be trusted voices to say, look, we're on top of this. We are a, a safe place for you to come. But if you are seeing patients that are very apprehensive about leaving their home, going to places indoors, they have to be at the forefront of communicating that. And that we've seen a lot of practices that say, you know, okay, we've got to reschedule. We're going we're gonna to take the effort to make those manual phone calls to reach out to people individually because we know that people are so anxious. They want a human voice to let them know we're still here for you. We still have that relationship that we want to maintain with you. And there's this big population health concern that you alluded to, the potential for isolation leading to mental health concerns exacerbating like suicide or substance abuse issues getting worse, such as opioids. I just want to come back to that. It's like, I talked to one practice leader who was working in GI in 2008 uh, during the Great Recession. And you know something that happened then was they started thinking of colonoscopies uh, the screenings for colonoscopies as elective. That is really dangerous when you start missing some of these really crucial screenings mm -hmm. that uh, can either happen in the primary care space or some of the specialist spaces. Those need to still happen. Whether you get someone in by a virtual visit or you communicate to them that they do need to come into the office if there's a physical exam that really doesn't lend itself to a virtual visit. So those are really important things for physician practices and other healthcare providers to really be proactive in communicating that. And as you said, be empathetic. So actually, since uh, I know we're going to have to race through some of these slides, but to jump on or to add to perhaps both of these comments, you know, there's a study that we've covered in past webinars from McKinsey that shows that patients, the biggest thing to get them back in is you have to ask them. So it's, um, I think it was 54% of patients said, well, I'd go if they'd ask me. So it's amazing. So Chris, exactly what you just described is get on the phone and call them. And so at the practice level, and, and we have listeners here from great big health systems with, you know, a hundred different hospitals or more, and we have private practices as well. And then, so the big hospital and health systems, it's harder because you have to scale up, but the concept is the same, right? It's, you know, we ask them. Um, and that's really, really important. We'll talk about the safety issue even more, but um, the fact is you have to figure out a way to ask them. And then also just anecdotally, it's interesting. My wife has a couple of different doctors in her orbit and uh, one of them is a cardiologist. And so recently my, my wife was calling to cancel and they said, well, do you, do you have uh, FaceTime? Great. We can do the appointment with you now. So that's, you know, as easy, less friction for the patient, um, mm -hmm. billable because it was FaceTime with the cardiologist. Right. So having that sort of attitude of how can we adapt? Uh, to a new reality. And, um, you know, the whole FaceTime, um, that'll probably go away soon. I'm not sure where we are with that. I know that's the HIPAA protection part of that was um, the beginning of the pandemic made easier. But in any event, the idea of pivoting and delivering care in a new way is really crucial. 
All right, Rob, I'll let you go. Take back right. over. <laughs> <laughs> so then on the flip side, if they didn't have a virtual visit, we said, well, why not? And here gets at those, those uh, reasons um, that I mentioned earlier. You know, it's too impersonal. I want to see the doctor in person. Um, simply, I just don't know enough about it yet. Um, or I don't trust the quality of care. I'm concerned about online privacy. Again, these are all perceptions that we can counter with the proper messaging. Uh, I know I've got one client that they're offering the first virtual visit free when you're healthy. They're like as a practice, just come on, let's get on together. We'll show you how it works so you're comfortable so that when you really are sick, you know how to use it. You're not using it the first time when you're sick and, and you know, when you're not feeling well. So I thought that was a brilliant idea. The bottom line is we have got to think out of the box right now. We've really got to be creative in um, what we're doing to help people. So this is kind of the one question that's not specifically healthcare, but it, 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 it just shows where people's minds are at. We ask them all of these different activities. Do you think when things are over and you can go back out, um, do you think you're gonna do these things immediately? Maybe after three to six months or you're not sure you're ever gonna go back. Here's where I brought the word hesitation. It really is creeping back into people's minds. The red in the immediately, all those red percentages mean that that score is down significantly from prior waves. So that means less people said immediately in wave three than in prior waves. So people are starting to step back and say, well, you know, maybe, maybe I don't want to eat at a restaurant or go shopping or go to the gym or even a place of worship. Um, so people are stick, they're kind of stutter stepping a little bit and saying, well, maybe not hugging and shaking hands and social gatherings. You know, we're human beings. We love to hug and shake hands. That's, we've been doing that since, you know, the beginning of our time. So how is that going to change us as a species? That's, that's really has a huge uh, impact on just us as human beings. So again, the, this is where I'm talking about hesitation is creeping back in just a little bit. So the key thing is how do we get patients back in? So we asked folks first, what, um, did you have any appointments or procedures you had to cancel? And so the good news is the, the number of, or the percentage of folks that said I had to cancel um, is down a little bit. Uh, you can see here that it's gone back up that I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to um, canceling any of these. So, uh, but still the majority are canceling appointments. So we're gonna have a lot of folks that have to come back in to get, to get caught back up. So we've gotta be prepared for that influx. And that means we've gotta be creative on how, when, um, where, and with whom. So we're gonna talk about those in, in, uh, in just a minute. So we asked folks then if they had to cancel an appointment or a procedure, what, what did you do? And the first thing they said is, I, they could have said is I rescheduled or I'm waiting. I'm not, you know, I kind of not sure I want to go in yet. I tried to reschedule and they wouldn't let me, or I, I'm not going to reschedule. I'm going to just forget about it. Or I was able to change to a virtual visit. Again, percentages in green is up to prior waves and red means it's significantly down. What, What's most concerning to me on this is the mental health column. You can see here, you've got 40% of folks that, had a, that um, had a mental health session canceled, they haven't, they haven't come back. They're not getting care when they probably need it most during this time. So how do we get, we all know that if it's hard enough to get in the first time to seek care, if you're having a mental health challenge, and it doesn't take much to kind of have you say, oh, you know, never mind, or I'm not going to go. We have really got to do a, a, a better job of keeping people that are already seeking care and uh, um, making sure that they stay with it. And then how do we get new folks in? Uh, so if, if, if we've gone virtual, I know a lot of um, psychologists are saying, I'm all about virtual visits, but only with established patients. I won't start out with a new patient virtually. I need to see them in person first. How do we handle that? So there's a lot of things we have to be talking about so that we're prepared so that people don't go on suffering. New question that we also added, what medical conditions are you in immediate need of to be seen right now? And look at the top ones in the darker brown bars. They're mostly mental health related, stress and anxiety, depression. 
hypertension, headaches, migraines, weight gain, you know, trouble sleeping, drug or alcohol abuse. So um, nearly six in 10 adults have some immediate health need. Again, when you multiply that times our population, that's a lot of people that are in need of care and many of whom are not able to get it. And much of that care um, has a, is mental health related, not a pure physical related need. What would make things, uh, make people switch providers? So we asked folks, um, you know, pick, you know, which of any of these would make you switch um, providers? And then I kind of coded them, if you will, into or categorized them into attitude, safety, access, health, and cost. And so um, attitude is, is, is key. Remember I, earlier I talked about empathic access. Well, not only do you wanna be able to provide access for people to come back in, um, all of us, whether it's the, the physician, the nurse, the, someone from the call center, someone from the physician's office, we all have to be part-time therapists when we're talking with patients. We can't just say, yeah, we'll get you next Tuesday. We have to say, I know you're struggling, Rob. I know you're concerned. Those are legitimate concerns. You know, tell me more how you're feeling and how we can help you. Here's what we're doing to help get you back in to, uh, to receiving care and how we're gonna do it safely. And, um, you know, does this sound like this would work for you? So it's, it's, it's acknowledging their fears and then telling them what we're doing to make it safe for them. You know, look at the number one thing. My current provider lacks empathy for my situation. They had a negative attitude towards me. They seemed rushed. This is not the time to be doing that. We have got to be empathetic as well as providing access. Stuart, we're going to add something. Yeah, Rob, it's funny. I'm just going to interject. Um, my uh, colleague Kathy Gord is now at this exact moment doing a webinar. We're doing a lot of webinars these days for the Community Oncology Alliance. And one of the things we talked about as we prepped for that meeting was this whole idea that now that you're um, slower, you know what you can do is some of the things that you've been meaning to get around to for a long time. So just like you were talking about the empathy right there, when you're answering the phone and you have um, people are scheduling for appointments and, you know, you always really wanted to give them a great experience on the phone when they came in and to make them feel reassured they're going to the right place. But this would be a time, if you're, especially if you're less busy, to really work on developing those muscles and getting really good at it. You need to today anyway, right? Patients need to feel like you're being empathetic and you understand the situation. What a fantastic opportunity if you ingrain that in the culture of your hospital, your, you know, center or your practice or wherever, that's just part of how we do things going forward. And so that's a topic for another webinar. I can't go into that for the sake of time, but those are the kinds of things we can think of. It's like, what kind of opportunities can we do to improve our business that can be habits for the long term? Yeah. And, and safety was lower down prior wave, but it's creeping back up. And I think um, um, a little later in the study here, um, uh, Chris will talk a little bit more about some of their findings and the importance of safety. So I'll just kind of, I'll tee that up and we'll get to that in a little bit. But just know that not surprisingly, as people, as hesitation and concern, we saw in that bell-shaped curve, people are kind of stepping back a little bit. So it's no surprise that safety is bubbling back up to, uh, to the surface. Hey Rob, really quick, just yeah, to build upon sure. that. There's, there's a lot about how practices are responding that add more patient-centric workflows into all of this. So much of how uh, doctor's offices were scheduling before was provider-centric. You know, when is the doctor available to see someone? And you got a batch of patients in the waiting room and there's a certain amount of wait time. Now as we're seeing, people are eliminating the wait room altogether. They're doing mobile check-ins uh -huh. from their cars outside. You are now seeing a poll system for patient scheduling that is more focused on making sure that the, when the patient is there, that we let them know when they can come in and then you walk someone from the door back to the exam room. That is a tremendously different culture of, of your workflow than what we saw before. So there are some patient-centric changes afoot that are only going to help you be more empathetic and seem more invested in the relationship with that individual. Great, I love Chris yeah. talk about that another day because we have, just don't get me started on those things. <laughs> but I think it's great that you're seeing that at, your, at the practice level as well because I, I famously have um, whined about my mother being made wait an hour and a half to see a cardiologist once because that was good for their schedule versus hers. 
And that's, um, you know, so we've been talking about patient experience a lot of our podcast here. So that's great to hear that. We'll have to talk more about that another day for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I've always told clients that um, a waiting room is a brand experience failure. It always has been. It always will be. And now what's happening is out of this difficult time, good things are starting to happen in terms of we are becoming more patient centric. Uh, so we unfortunately needed a pandemic uh, to have us get off our, uh, our keisters, but that, that is key. And so um, making things you know, customer centric, if you will, is, is critical. So those are great things. Again, I agree. Topic for another, another time. Yeah. Well, you'd get an opportunity to reinvent yourself in every way. And I'll just, again, that's not today. I'd love to talk more about it. Absolutely. But go ahead. Yeah. Rob. Well, you know, and as again, I put my quote up there, time is the new currency. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. And healthcare has been notoriously effective at wasting people's time. And that, that no longer is, uh, is going to fly. We don't even have time anymore. We don't have time to kind of, um, lounge around. We, we, we're so busy just trying to get people caught up. So efficiency in every step of the patient journey is paramount now. Level of concerns um, about seeking non-coronavirus care at these facilities. I added this question last wave because I was seeing more and more people on the news saying they weren't going to the ER when they were having um, heart attack symptoms because they were afraid to get the coronavirus and then they were dying at home. I know there's been a lot of PSAs, the big one that the, the Boston hospitals did a while back. Um, if you're having stroke or heart attack symptoms, you've got to come into the ER. We know it's the safest place to be, but it's amazing how many consumers um, don't. I have a client that their high-risk uh, moms were trying to deliver at home because they were afraid to come into the hospital, and then they had to be rushed to the ER because they had complications, which were anticipated early on in the, in the pregnancy. That's why they were... They were deemed high risk, but they changed at the last minute and tried to deliver at home. And some serious things happened with this, with these, this client's um, um, mothers. So it's those things we have to counter um, over and over. We can't over communicate enough. The, we are a safe place to be. This is what we do. Um, fortunately, the concern levels are down slightly from wave two. So they're not increasing, which is great. The problem is they're much higher among women, 18 to 44, as well as among the African-American and Hispanic communities. We know that especially the African-American community is getting hit harder with the coronavirus. So their concern level is absolutely legitimate. And it, it, it just shows you we can't communicate. One size doesn't fit all. We have to be more targeted with our communication and our messaging to uh, empathize more personally with a particular group's fears, whether it's gender or age or um, ethnicity, it doesn't matter. Whatever that is, being more empathetic to their specific concerns is critical. So here's some things, people are willing to make trade-offs. You know, we talked about how do we get people back in? Here's the where. Uh, almost a quarter of folks said, look, if I've got an inpatient procedure, I'm cool to have it done at one of your outpatient facilities if I can get in faster. So you've got a quarter of the people are willing to change up where, and that opens up your, your opportunities for getting people back in faster. And then the type of um, provider they would see. Uh, and Chris, this is probably interesting to your group. You know, uh, about one in five are willing to see an advanced practitioner as opposed to their, their primary care um, physician. So nurse practitioners and, and PAs, they play a vital role in helping to get people back in. Chris, what are, what are you seeing um, within your group in terms of how the advanced practitioners are working with, uh, with the doctors? The importance of APPs and your nurse practitioners, your PAs, has only gotten increasingly more important every single year, even before COVID-19. It's just to maximize the amount of time that your, your physicians can actually spend on care and of course, there's a lot of things on the administrative side that are taking up more time. Getting more of your nurses involved in this and your everyone outside of your physicians, they still have critical roles to play, even though in the very early months of this, uh, I should really say early weeks of this, you know, there were a lot of furloughs in some physician practices. But now that you're getting those volumes reestablished, that you're back 
perhaps around 75% of pre-COVID normals, maybe even closer to 100%. We're seeing some practices actually getting that mix of in-person and virtual visit back to about 100% of normal volume. They have a critical role to play. And you also have to consider the pre-visit workflows for those virtual visits. Someone still needs to get those charts in front of the doctor so that they can look at it before they talk to the patient. That time that the doctor has with the patient in a virtual visit is very valuable. As you say, you know, time is the new currency. You don't want to waste that time in that virtual visit just figuring out technical stuff. You know, a lot of the practice staff are also being involved in making sure that everything goes off without a hitch before that virtual visit. So they are definitely very important. And it's important for a lot of these practice leaders to make sure that they are getting their people working to the top of their licensure to get the most out of them. Yeah, great, thanks. So uh, next, next few slides are, what are some things that we can do to ease concerns? So for safety, it, it, people are catching on of what we've been teaching them. Social distancing, masks, wash your hands. This is what we've been teaching them. It's not like there's 50 million things that we can all do. These are the top three and they work. As I alluded to earlier, wear your mask, wash your hands and social distance. So they wanna see us doing that as much as we're telling them uh, to do it. I, I had a client that had a PSA and the physicians and nurses weren't wearing masks because they said it muffled them for the video and it was panned. And so I said, you got to start over. People were saying you're being hypocrites. You've got to, you've got to walk the talk. And they're like, you know what? We, we screwed up. And, uh, and so they reshot the whole thing. So luckily they tested it and it didn't go out um, live. So it's just, it's things like that. People are watching what we're doing. And so we've got to make sure that we are walking the talk. When it comes to cost concerns, I know some of these you can't legally do or um, not always available to do in different states, but I threw all of these in just to think outside the box. The bottom line is consumers want healthcare providers to at least acknowledge their financial strain. And if those that are really in serious financial need, what can we do to help them? Is it extending payments, giving them a payment plan? Is it a waiving their deductible? Things like this. I know we're the providers, you're hurting financially. We all get that. But we've got to prime the pumps to get people back in. So revenue has to start before profit. So think about when you start a cold car. You can't rev it right away. You'll blow it. You've got to let it idle and warm up. That idling is revenue. The revving up is profit. We've got to be smart about this. We've got to get people back in. And if that means we have a segment of our patients who are really struggling financially, we have got to come up with some ways to help them. And then on access concerns, um, virtual visits, again, doesn't matter how we ask it, they keep, that keeps bubbling to the surface. The other thing that's interesting that I've noticed, I do a lot of access research outside of um, the coronavirus and extended hours during the week, that always came up above weekend hours. So if people have their druthers, they would rather have you have extended hours during the week, early morning and late night than weekend. Now, given the time we're in and we've got so many people to get back in, we've got to be all hands on deck. Bankers hours have to go away. And so we not only need ex extended hours at night, we also need weekend hours. So eventually over time, when we're caught up, maybe we pair back on the weekend hours, but weekday hours are absolutely critical. Again, working in banking in the early 80s when bankers hours was the negative, you know, no one ever said that positively. That was kind of a, a snide remark. Oh, you've got bankers hours. Well, now we've got, oh, you've got healthcare hours. We have to get rid of that just like banking did. And that's where access comes into play. Hey, access, hey, Rob, got rid of bankers. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Interject. If you're working nine to five, that's your hours, you're closed 76% of the time, just as a reality check, if you think about it. There so you go. Nice, nice stat. Yep. <laughs> and then uh, what's the preferred method of communication? It's twofold. Phone, verbal, so you calm their anxieties, but written because there's so much for them to remember. Remember, they're cognitively impaired. So if you get on the phone and say, oh, you need to do do, 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 and we're going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, they're going to forget that by the time they hang up. So you've got to talk with them about their options and empathize and acknowledge their fears. And then you've got to follow up in written communication. The bottom line, as Chris and Stuart were saying earlier, it's about being proactive. The days of being reactive, you know, we build it and they will come. 
those are gone. We have got to go out and we've got to bring them back in. Preferred messaging. Patients get the drill. It's about explaining. Explaining what to prepare, explain how we're handling things. That's really what it's all about. Um, and it's about what we're doing now, not what we're working on doing. I, I went back and watched um, FDR's uh, first inaugural speech back in the 30s. And he talked about basically Americans, um, they want action and action now because they, he was trying to get them out of the, the Great Depression. And that's what Americans want right now. They want action. They want action now. So whatever your messaging, it's got to be here's what we are doing now. Don't get into here's what we're going to be doing. And I'll tell you, too, we didn't we didn't test for this, but other work I've done this. Um, we're all in this together. Stay strong. If you're doing any of that messaging, stop. I, and this is a marketing term that I just made up. They're getting sick and tired of all this kumbaya crap. <laughs> so stop all this feely stuff. They want to know what are you doing? Give them action because this, this, you know, stay strong or win this together. It's like an intransitive verb. It has no action. So remember that in your messaging, your messaging should be like an action verb, not an intransitive verb. So there, there's, <laughs> there's my English lesson for the day, yeah, but you, you get what I, you get what I'm saying there. Yeah, The messaging I think needs to be relevant to the day, but moving forward at the same time. So it can't be out of touch like you just described, but it, um, so it needs to be relevant, but people are, you know, they've, they have, they have COVID exhaustion at this point. So at the same time, sure. so it's a really fine line, but yeah, for sure the, we're all in this together. And if you kind of look around the, the country, you're not seeing we're all in this together as we're going through some stressful times for sure. So perceptions of how organizations are providing. So provider side, my doctor, my preferred hospital, uh, significantly more confidence in how we are handling things and making them more confident to use them in the future. Um, prescription, um, you know, pharma pharmaceuticals, retail clinics and health insurance companies, not so much. You know, health insurance companies, they're making bank right now. They're making a lot of money on, on um, uh, monthly premiums. And they're not paying as much out because people, they're not getting care. So I wonder what their brands are going to be like when we come out of this, you know, because what we do now will be remembered. So how you treat people now, they will remember that. So your brand uh, right now, as Chris says, you're the heroes. And that can set you up to come out with momentum or you can come out facing headwinds, which will be very hard to combat. So how we treat people now is absolutely critical. From uh, um, PCP, um, about eight in 10 people nationally have a primary care physician. That's pretty consistent, I see over my other studies. And we asked them what kind of job are primary care physician is your PCP doing at patient care during the, the pandemic. And you can see that it's, it's, it's pretty strong, making you feel safe, proactively communicating, keeping you informed, providing alternatives, recognizing our heightened emotions. So primary care physicians are doing a, 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 a pretty strong job at doing all these things, which is, which is key. And then um, Chris, if this is uh, from, from a recent study you've done, if you wanna talk to this and maybe any other data, Absolutely. So MGMA does a weekly SMS-based polling initiative called MGMA STAT. And we have a panel of a couple thousand uh, practice leaders that we talk to every week. Uh, this most recent week, we asked, what was the top reason that patients are giving you for deferring care? Why aren't they coming into the office? Uh, you know, we just did another poll recently assessing where the payer mix changes are happening. We know millions of people are out of work. There are going to be continued unemployment claims for months to come. How much is the issue going to be loss of job and insurance versus just the, the main existential threat of a pandemic? And 87% say safety is that concern. It's, it's not so much that you know, they're worried about how to pay for it. There's, there's certainly an, an impetus for people to be concerned about talking to your patients about how they're going to pay, getting some sort of payment arrangement set up. But safety is number one still. I mean, other people cited that, well, you know, you banned elective surgeries in my area, I can't get that seen. Or patients are unwilling to comply with safety regulations, they don't want to wear a mask, or they're of the opinion that the pandemic is exaggerated or a hoax or something like that. Uh, there's actually a small segment of the population that we saw, uh, they don't like the fact that there are visitor restrictions in some clinics, that they definitely want to have a family member or someone else with them when they go to see the doctor. 
but by and large, safety above all else is what is going to be the key determinant of getting people back in. And that just speaks to the need for meeting people where they are. You need to have a proactive approach for your virtual visits if you're not going to be able to convince them to come back into the physical clinic space. Uh, people, that there is that fear out there. And I'm sorry, go ahead. At, you know, it's at least, you know, all these people are, they're still a little bit scared. And to Rob's point earlier, there are people with chest pains, there are people with drug symptoms, gallbladders are inflamed, and they're just staying home out of fear. And so that is a crucial element for people to understand. Communicate how you're keeping them safe, that they are safe because their doctors and nurses and other employees there are safe. But if you don't want that, we have another option for you. One of the things that this is a topic that, you know, a lot of hospitals we work with, and, you know, certainly there's a lot of hospitals out there with marketing departments that are the same message of safety. And so we have to get patients back. Clearly we know from the hospital side, you know, elective care is where all the money is. We're not doing elective care. That's a real problem. But the interesting thing that I would say is every, you know, whether it's a practice level or the hospital level, you know, it's brainstorm every inflection point you can. So do you have videos with providers, you know, assuring safety? Do you have emails and texts assuring safety? How do you answer the phone? Do you assure, ensure safety? What, do you, what kinds of things that are tangible and physical that people can see? So for example, my wife had a procedure uh, right as soon as things opened up, she moved because we were worried we'd get a second sort of bounce up here. And um, so she went to an ASC, which made her feel more safe. It wasn't where they're treating those COVID cases. They, she waited in the parking lot till they were ready. They you know, wheeled her out to me. There were no visitors. All those things and communicating that. And the last point I would make at whatever level, whether you're you know, a hospital health system or a practice, you're going to get sick of this message way before patients do. That's a really common trap for marketers is they get sick of talking about safety, safety, safety. We said that already. He's like, no, you haven't. Not enough. It's, a, you know, it's um, uh, spit in the ocean, so to speak, in terms of like, you know, there's a lot of people competing for the mind share. And then I think that going back to something, Chris, you've, you mentioned earlier that we've written about and probably should talk to you guys about more of making the um, health, the provider is the voice of reason in the community and leveraging, taking advantage of the bully platform they've got. So yeah, that safety thing is just say it and say it and say it again. Uh, and so you know, if, if you are extending weekday hours or even uh, weekend hours, you know, that can help you underscore. It's like, well, we're extending hours not because we need to get revenue back, which is very much the case for many of these practices, but it's also, well, we're rotating our staff so that we don't have too many people in the physical building all at once. That extended hours and rotation of staff are a social distancing strategy for your practice that can further help you under, help your patients feel like they are going to be comfortable coming in. Okay, there's not a bunch of people in the waiting room. There's not as many people milling about. That limited exposure for them can be a selling point to make overcome that hurdle of, I'm worried about my own personal safety. Yep, very good. Yeah. Another interesting um, finding here uh, is that we asked folks, what, uh, for, for coronavirus information, what websites or social media did you look to? And uh, no surprise, the CDC, that's still the number one, but it's down significantly from prior waves. And what's up from prior waves is the doctor's website. So again, the physician's role in informing patients and helping them come back in is growing. And no matter how we, you know, how we frame the question. So I think that's important as an, another, another way is how are, we, how are we getting people to our places of information, whether it's our uh, social media um, or whether it's on our website, how are we getting people in? So, you know, you're talking SEO, SEM, things like that. But the important thing is doctors' websites are increasing as a place where people go for information as well as one that's most useful. I know, Chris, as you were saying earlier that physicians and nurses are the most respected um, occupation. And so how are we helping them to really become that strong voice? Yeah, absolutely. The Gallup poll that I alluded to, I just want to 
sites. Medical professionals in general rate highly in Americans' assessment of honesty and ethics, with at least six in 10 US adults saying medical doctors, pharmacists, and dentists have high levels of these virtues. I mean, we already have physicians that are very well versed in the bedside manner. It's like they should be able to reach out to the patient consumers and really be that voice in this cacophony of politicians, of things that they're hearing from mm -hmm. corporations and other businesses, whether it's national, local. The doctor has always been a trusted source. Going back to the Hippocratic Oath, it's like, we understand these people to be trustworthy and knowledgeable on this. Let's take advantage of that. And, you know, Take a look. I really, I'm really interested in seeing what the Los Angeles systems, what they've been doing, what kind of results that they get from the efforts that are going on out on the West Coast. So that they have a, a a joint effort right now that's saying, you know, your life may be on pause, but your care isn't. That is mm -hmm. a that is a potentially very strong message coming from a physician. Yep. Very yep. good. Yeah. I want to take up just a moment here of time check. I can go long because this has been very very meaty. We will be having some questions and answer period at the end of this. We're already five minutes from the hour. Rob and Chris, are you guys okay going a little long? Sure. Good. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, Fortunately, like, we're coming I'll to the end, Stuart. But I'll text my team. They're going to wait for me. I have a meeting, internal meeting. I'm going to be late too. And then um, the, for those of you, if any of our listeners have a hard stop at the hour, that's fine. There will be a recording so you can catch the rest of this later and slides will be available on the website. So let's just keep going. So um, the last section here are the emotions Americans are feeling. Fortunately, the level of loneliness, anger, fear, and anxiety is, is coming down. Um, hope, optimism, inspiration, it hasn't changed. So, um, but some of the, the negative emotions are coming down. However, they remain significantly higher among women and younger folks. As I mentioned, that, that theme is, is consistent throughout our study. But I also went back and took a look at um, the emotions of healthcare workers. We asked folks if they were, if they were a clinician, you know, or if they worked in healthcare but they weren't patient-facing, or they didn't work in healthcare. So here's what's concerning: uh, the dark blue bar is is our our frontline clinicians. Their levels of loneliness, anger, fear, and anxiety are not only significantly higher, but just dramatically higher. Like like. On a zero to 10 scale, they're, they're, they're two rating points higher, which I just don't see very often in any other studies that I do across different subgroups. That is huge. Um, so, you, you know, what are we doing as an industry to help our frontline caregivers get through this emotionally? They're exhausted. I've seen more than one physician break down and cry when they were giving a, um, uh, you know, uh, they were doing a, um, a press release. So they were talking to the press. Uh, so... They, they're, they're worn out. What are we doing to help them get the emotional support that, that they need? Fortunately, their optimism is much higher. And again, if we, any, every one of us knows healthcare clinicians, and they are an optimistic group. Otherwise, you couldn't make it in being a, a, a caregiver. Um, but I, I do worry about their emotional levels. Uh, we've we've got to take that and treat the whole person like we like we're talking about with um, with patients, Chris. Are you you know what are what are you guys seeing along those lines of that emotional stress? It really is important for anyone in a leadership capacity in these healthcare provider organizations to address their providers and staff. Let them know ab about the available mental health services that are available to them, either through their commercial insurance plans, EAP things like that. Make sure that they understand that you are thinking of them and then what, you know, take a look at what are your workplace policies for leave and disability, family leave, things like that. And just demonstrate that you're committed to the mental health of them as employees and workers within the organization, because you're going to have to rely on them to communicate to your patient base, those same things that yes, we are all dealing with this very stressful situation. You know, people talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's not just this, you know, epidemiological disaster, but it's also a, a crisis of isolation, as we've talked about before. So if you can communicate and train your employees and your providers 
to talk about this the right way and to assess themselves, they're going to be in a better position to communicate that to the patients. And that's going to reap really good benefits. Great. So I, the key takeaways, we've already walked through all of these. So you can read them on uh, at your leisure um, later, but I just wanted to leave you this last slide before we take questions and answers. It really is the path back. What are the building blocks? And access really is about where, when, how, and with whom, but it also has a foundation of attitude. How you accomplish the what will make all the difference. Remember that empathic access. I started out with it and I'll end with it. That empathic access really has to be our mantra uh, going forward and really drive all of our innovation. So it's not just about having virtual visits operationally, it's about how do we get people scheduled for that, being proactive and empathetic. Very good. I guess Stuart, do you have some, some final thoughts? Yeah, I'll just say that again, as, as you were talking through this and looking through your slide, it's just so important to recognize, um, and it's inspiring to me, that healthcare can be better. Uh, I love some of your comments. <laughs> Rob, some of our favorite podcasts with you were just sort of offhand things that we've discussed. And uh, <laughs> I love the a waiting room as a brand you know, as a leading example of a brand experience failure. So I feel like that this is an opportunity um, that for us to stop and really think, okay, we have a new world. Healthcare is transformed forever. Um, you know, these things like no more banker hours and virtual visits and, you know, letting people wait in their car, building a system around the patient is really fundamental. And, I, and uh, we've even had on other podcasts you know, therapists talking about, and uh, one of the therapists I know talks about how, you know, will we'll I, we'll I have missed it? Like, once this is over, let's pretend it's all over. Would you be mad at yourself for missing the opportunity this presents? And that's really an intriguing thought, you know? If suddenly it got mm -hmm. somehow, luckily, it'd be prematurely over, this will be over eventually. So from a standpoint of, you know, patient-centric care, how do we build a patient experience? And uh, long-term subscribers mm -hmm. and readers and listeners will have done a ton on patient experience with our podcast. And, you know, it's, it's always been sort of, well, it's a system and it's really hard and it is. Um, but uh, another thing that uh, last year at Shizmed, uh, one of the speakers was talking about, because he was from the investment world and the hospitals would say, well, we can't really do that with, when it comes to uh, making the bills transparent. Well, we can't do that. And, you know, offering multiple access, points of access of care. Well, we can't really do that. Um, you know, sorting through the insurance issues. We can't do that. And when the money guys are saying, that's exactly what we're counting on. Because <laughs> we're going to swoop in and disrupt this marketplace. And while you're telling us why we can't do it, we're going to find ways we can. And that's really what's happening. Look at all the retail clinics coming across America, right? Um, mm -hmm. CBS and Walmart, they have posted, prices posted when you walk in. They figured out how to do it. So there's going to be disruption. Will you be, which side of it will be? And maybe another thought, uh, this is funny. Um, just to, socially, I know somebody was saying, yeah, my doctor said, as soon as this is over, I'm dumping this telehealth. And my sort of macabre joke is there's teledoc behind you going, yes, that's exactly what I hope you're going to do. So, you know, it's the world has changed. You can fight, you can complain. Uh, another thing that we did recently was a podcast with my creative director about the stages of grief, right? You can stay in denial forever. Probably not the most effective strategy when you go through the uh, Kubler-Ross model, right? There's, let's get to acceptance as fast as we can and rebuild towards a new reality. So that's a lot, but I think that's just what this is. It's like for all the devastation and death and, you know, suffering and, you know, problems we have right now, it's like, okay, can we at least get something, a silver lining out of this better? Can we make healthcare better together? So that was um, terrific. And you guys are colleagues in arms here. So uh, Chris, it was fun having you here today and uh, Rob, fun as always. So I'll have to do this kind of stuff. Thanks, Garrett. This is a tremendous opportunity for reinvention. At, you know, people, so many practices that I've talked to, they were looking at telehealth before, but there was just the barrier of regulatory mandates that prevented reimbursement. You take that away, they jumped on it. We, there have been just too many stories to count about just rapidly launching into this after people had been looking at it for a long time and just waiting to pounce on it. Let's also think about, it's not just about reinventing the patient process, but also 
what does your physical space look like? If you're sent, if you've sent home billers, coders, and all sorts of other administrative workers to work remotely, does that really come back or is that just become that new normal? In which case you have a tremendous opportunity to reinvent your practice space and say, maybe we get more clinical space that could be revenue generating. There's tremendous opportunity here and the right mindset being, you know, having that perseverance to say, we're going to do this rather than just say, we're going to get through this. will probably make the difference for a lot of these practices. If you have any questions, we are over time. Feel free to send an email back to us or communicate to us at healthcaresuccess.com. Um, Chris, Rob, fantastic um, discussion today. Thanks for joining us.